0: Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey there, it's John Warlow. You're in for a treat because you're going to be hearing from a woman named Laura Co. Laura was one of the owners of a company called LithoLink, which sold recently to LabCare, a multi-billion-dollar business in the lab space. And Laura's story is interesting. You know, she built the company along with her father and brother up to around 50 employees, roughly 10 million in annual revenue. And they ultimately sold the business to, a, you know, again, an 800-pound gorilla in their industry, one of the two big, uh, you know, major acquirers. And she had a relatively good experience, but learned a few things along the way, uh, a couple of really neat nuggets in this interview about how to structure your earn out, things she might have done differently in the negotiation process. Ultimately, they did a great a job of exiting the business. You'll find that, um, as she tells you in the interview, she was able to get, uh, you know, multiple close to 20 times, so, you know... At, a huge multiple relative to what businesses in that industry would typically sell for. So, some interesting tidbits. Enjoy the interview with Laura Coe. Laura Coe, thanks for joining.
1: Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Oh, I'm I'm thrilled that you're here. Now, you sold LithoLink. So, why don't you just tell us a little bit about LithoLink? What was the company? What did you do? Give us a bit of an overview.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, Litholink was a company that uh, we founded in 1995. Uh, It's a healthcare technology-based company. It's still in existence, I'm very proud to say. Um, And Basically, it was established uh, uh, my father's life's work. Um, He figured out once you have kidney stones, how to prevent them from ever reoccurring. And he became the world's expert on the disease, uh, went out and did what physicians are supposed to do. He lectured, um, wrote 300 articles, five books, and became known as you know the guy on kidney stones. And yet, because of the healthcare industry, the way um, information is disseminated, his life's work wasn't getting out to doctors nationwide. So we brought the company into existence with the goal um, of bringing this standard of care to doctors nationally so that patients everywhere could get the benefits of um, getting rid of these kidney stones.
0: Well, I've got kidney stones. So t- tell me, the what, what do you do?
1: <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, everybody, it's like cocktail parties where everybody, right? Like there was somebody who has them. Um, they're completely treatable. First of all, uh, you never have to have them again, which um, is s- so surprising that it hasn't uh, gotten out to every doctor uh, nationally, but um, you get tested. You do... Um, uh, we look at what's going on in your chemistries uh, based on 24-hour urine collections, and from those tests, we can tell why you're making the stones. People make them for a gotcha. variety of reasons, and you get on some treatment. Um, you'll never have them again. I know it's really painful, right? Like women say they've had children and kidney stones, they prefer natural childbirth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that says something. So yeah, I'm still a little unclear on what the business did. So what 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 exactly were you selling and to who were you selling that?
1: Yeah. So um, what was really cool about the business was we were a healthcare technology business in, in the 90s, right? So this is pre-internet. Um, my father started databasing his patients and in the 70s <laughs> when he had reels of tapes and, and computers that took up uh, entire closets. And um, we took this basic concept and we created a, a, a state-of-the-art database. Um, We did the testing. We were a laboratory company. We actually had the lab. So unlike labs in America where they do the testing and the doctors get back just a basic number, we did all this interpretive analysis on the data. And we reported back in a way that now seems really straightforward. But back then where technology was, we gave doctors back all of the data on the patient every single time they did a test with us. Um, it sounds like a small point, but if you go to GAP, they know exactly uh, who you are and what you've purchased, and they can look up your orders and and history on anything. Um, when it comes to healthcare, they don't put you in with a patient level ID, they just put you in for every single test you do. So doctors can't look at a patient over time. And if you have a chronic illness, that's a huge problem. So we were game changers in in that space.
0: So this database became an important asset for you in the sale of the business, I'd imagine.
1: It was the asset. What we realized was um, this technology, this ability to collect data over time and look at patients who are chronically ill over time, um, was transferable to other diseases. So we actually moved to uh, osteoporosis and then chronic kidney disease. And once we were purchased, we actually were on (laughs) um, to do 25 more diseases. That was the goal.
0: Wow. You know, it's funny – there's an idea or a concept among strategic acquisitions where it's it's the you know the Rembrandt in in the in the attic idea, meaning that we all think as business owners there's something that we're selling, maybe a, a multiple of EBITDA, but oftentimes uh, acquirers are are acquiring something that's very. Unique to your business that you may not even know about It's and the, the reason there's a an old wives' tale about the Rembrandt of the attic. It's the it's the homeowner who goes and thinks they're selling their home because it's 2,500 square foot and has three bedrooms, et cetera. But it's actually in the attic. You've got this Rembrandt that is you know incredibly valuable that, that the homeowner kind of forgot about. So it's just a it's a good good reminder that you know your database in your case at LithoLink was was critical. Tell me about the trigger that. That caused you to want to maybe sell because you're working with your dad. I mean, this is a family business. So, what made you trigger? What was the trigger?
1: Yeah, I was working with my father and my brother, um, to be honest. My brother and I were business partners. My dad kept his day job. So, it was really my brother is 26 and I was 24, and the two of us um, jumped in on this. Um, The the triggering event was that they actually called us. Um, We got a phone call because we were taking enough of the market share away from. Uh, this entire sect of sector of doctors, and it was starting to eat away at their revenue for the entire area, and so they thought if they purchased us, um, it would stop the bleed. And who's so, they? Uh, LabCorp of America. So there's Quest and LabCorp. Uh, the lab industry is a acquisition-based industry, and we. Um, if you're going to a lab in America at this point, it's probably LabCorp or Quest. Uh, so that's the other reason is we'd watch the industry just you know, completely be acquired by these two companies. Uh, so it seemed like um, we were looking into different options of raising venture money or doing something so that we could stay competitive with these four million and eight, uh, sorry, four billion and $8 billion businesses. Um, but when they called us, it just seemed like the obvious thing to do.
0: So LabCorp, uh, was a $4 billion company? Yeah. And Quest an $8 billion yeah. company? Got it. And so roughly how big was Litholink at the time, just to give us a proportion? Yeah.
1: Yeah. We were, uh, top line, we were 10 million. Um, we had 50 employees, which, um, it, because of the investment we put into our procedures and our technology, uh, we kept it at 50, but, um... Uh, yeah, it was it was a nice sized company, but nothing like the four billion that we were trying to merge with, which was quite an adventure.
0: Wow. Well, let's get into that now. So, so they approach you, LabCorp of America, approaches you and says, uh, "We love this business. Um, take us through the negotiation. But you know, make us give us a seat at the at the negotiation table in the boardroom. What was that like? Take us through." Yeah. That
1: um, you know, I'm sure everybody says it, but very stressful. I sort of equated if you've ever bought a home, it's like, you know, trying to buy a home for a month and a half, two months straight, right? It just went on and on and on and on and on. Uh, you know, the, the, the most important thing is we had a, a great legal team. We um, worked with a, a firm here in Chicago that um, my brother had gotten a great relationship with a top partner there. And uh, we would sit down at the negotiation table and go through thing after thing after thing. And it would just, you know, it, it felt like it was a process that was never going to end.
0: Give um, us an example of something that you would never have thought they would have asked about that they actually asked about.
1: Yeah. I mean, my life became a series of coming into the office, my brother saying the deal's off, and then by lunch, the deal's on, and then by dinner, the deal's off. Um, and it would be stuff like, we are worried, we built our own Uh, building and when we built it we had you know soil specimens and and made sure it was all fine but what if the environmental laws change and the soil is actually more toxic than it we realize at this date um, and the employees come after LabCorp are you on the hook for that or are we Um, if in 20 years from now an employee has an environmental lawsuit Right, and that actually became a sticking point to the point that everybody walked away from the table um, because obviously I can't get a phone call twenty years later saying that I owe you know fifty million dollars uh, to an employee for something that I didn't know existed um, and you know for a company I don't own anymore, right? Um, so it, it was it would get really intense.
0: So in that case, were you able to get your lawyer to to, to remove that as a rep and warranty from the the you know the, the final deal?
1: We were, we were, and we were very, 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 very aggressive about taking on, um, any kind of burden post deal, uh, in those kinds of terms, because I think once you walk away from the company and you have no control, it's hard to remain liable for, you know, things that happen after.
0: Right. And these, these reps and warranties are things that, that, that last, that you are representing and warranting that, that, um, that you are being truthful as part of the negotiation, so they can they can come back to haunt you if the list is too long. So smart, yeah. for uh, Being aggressive in, in your case, um, as you as we go back to the actual transaction itself, you get approached by Lab Care uh, proactively. You weren't sort of soliciting them as a potential suitor. They they kind of came to you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Take us from that point to the deal close? Did, did you, for example, did you start conversations with the other big 800-pound gorilla quest or did you just go down the road with lab care? Make walks through that.
1: Yeah. No, we we didn't. We we focused on the, um, the bird in hand. The thing that I think we did that was difficult but really worthwhile was um, we positioned ourselves more based on a technology model than what companies were trading at for, uh, the lab industry. So as a lab company, you get some really small multiple of your bottom line revenue, right? So, um, we had invested most of our money back into the company to keep building out these models. And we knew we had a model that was valuable. So we, we spend a lot of time arguing with them that we're worth more because we're coming in with this, um, this technology that they can use which eventually they understood but that was uh a, i'd say the vast preponderance was spent between that and um the amount of money that that we get up front what the back-end deal looks like and um um, um what the earn out right like uh milestones have to be Got it. Um, and you know it was, it was very difficult but i think the thing that um, got us over the hurdle was understanding what their needs were and what was really important to them. Um, and I think the more you spend time understanding their needs and goals and why they're at the table, the the better the negotiation can go.
0: How did you do that, Laura?
1: Yeah, I think um, <laughs> it's hard, right? I think the the lawyers going back and forth and the sticking points um, on the legal stuff make it, makes it a very contentious and difficult uh, environment to Try to have a, a civilized and normal conversation. so i I think um we we made great efforts to talk directly to the team that was purchasing us within the company and try to get to know them, try to get to know them as people um and then try to get past this you know fronting of 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 a negotiation to as human beings, like what are we both looking for? are we are we aligned? Do we have the same you know, goals and get them excited and on board about what the potential is instead of turning it into just a, a a numbers game.
0: So LabCare would have had a corporate development team, like a separate business unit, I'm guessing, that that would do deals as opposed to the the line function that you were going to be ultimately reporting into. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So both showed up to the table though. Exactly. They were an acquisition company. So they had a, a very, um, uh, set team of people that would come in and, and, and go through this. Um, but then there was the guy who we were going to report into um, who was mainly, like I said, trying to stop the bleed of this sector uh, from the the um, amount we had carved out from, from his area. So uh, he was really focused on, that's the guy we tried to talk to the most, right? Like he was really focused on how we can help um, grow his revenue back up. And we got to understand what his frustrations were, what his goals were, and how we could help serve that. And then it was sort of us trying to convince the acquisition team.
0: Got it. And so what kind of multiple would a would a typical lab company sell for? And what kind of multiple would a typical technology? Just give us a sense of the, the differential there between what you were arguing for and what you know was typical in the industry.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was usually like two times. Um, so earnings. for a lab
0: company, it'd be like two times earnings, and then yeah, what would yeah. what would a technology company? What were you hoping for?
1: We we got closer to like you know um, five or six times, right? We were we were really shooting for um, well, from the bottom line earnings, we were we we end up closer to like twenty times earning.
0: Wow! So uh, how did you go from five or six to twenty?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we we I think we really were successful in getting them to understand that. Um, this was the model that they could use to really grow the company. The, the acquisition concept was fading out. There weren't that many labs left to keep acquiring and it had to become more of a quality play. Um, Quest and LabCorp were fighting um, nonstop for contracts with the insurance companies and they'd gotten to such a war with each other that they were bidding underneath what they could actually deliver. So they would get a united contract And say, I do all your testing for X amount of dollars, but they actually couldn't, they couldn't get it done. And it was becoming a huge problem. So we were proposing that they have a more value add concept to the lab industry.
0: Got it, got it. And the twenty times it, does that include the earnout piece as well, or is that the yeah. cash? So it includes the full full nut. And and so you were tell tell us about the earnout because this is something we talk about all the time. Um, you know, trying to get as much of your money up front and as little you know based on the earnout. But obviously, most companies have some form of earnout. So in your case, you guys had an earnout. You know, maybe talk a little bit. Was it was it multi year? Was it a big portion of the deal?
1: Yeah, it it was it was 2 years. Um and again, I think just understanding what their goal was. They didn't want us to walk away as the founders leave them this company and then, you know, what we saw through the acquisition process was you know, your your company's at great risk for going under. So their goals were to keep the business intact and the thing that they purchased actually has value. Um so it was 2 years, but they kept the goals really like, you know, the guy called them cupcakes. <laughs> like They were really easy for us to meet um, because we understood, you know, look, he just really wants us to be, to be here. And we're like, great, but you have to make these reasonable. So they withheld 40, uh, I think it was 30 or 40% um, on the back end over two years um, that we kept the business. So it didn't, it didn't lose money. Um,
0: and were you able to hit the targets, the cupcakes? We were, we were
1: totally able to hit it. And I think if we... Hindsight 2020 would have been great had we set up a, a bigger upside. Um, I think w- the thing we didn't expect was once we got to be part of the bigger company, um, we were able to really grow the company aggressively for a period of time there. And we didn't set up uh, aggressive bonuses for us, right, if we hit um, hit better uh, um, profits for them.
0: Interesting. So you're you're you know if you had to do it over again you might be saying look you know if we hit to use a, I know you're not a big sports fan but it, hear me out if we had a <laughs> if we had you know a baseball analogy look if we hit a single you know we're going to get x but if we hit a triple you know give us 2x or if we hit a home run you know maybe it's 3x you you'd wish yeah. you sort of created those milestones.
1: Yeah, we 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 did a little bit, right? But we didn't really do the the home run model, right? I didn't it didn't seem um right at the time they were giving us a a nice uh, payout. Why, you know, I don't know, sort of like, do I want to keep double dipping into this? But the truth is, if if I'm going to grow the company by some tremendous uh, percentage, right? Like why not? And it it doesn't hurt to ask. So um, we ended up growing the company tremendously and we were like, damn, we left a lot on the table there.
0: (laughs) Tell us a little bit um, about that earnout experience I mean what was the toughest part about going from a you know a family business where you and your dad and brother knew each other well obviously to to working for this giant you know billion dollar company um, what's the toughest thing about an earnout
1: um I mean I'll just start by saying you know everything um and it was I thought the hard thing was to get through the deal the back end two years was, just incredibly difficult um so a I would just really encourage people to get ready to work very hard for <laughs> at least nine months while you're integrating the hard part is taking a boutique 50 person company that you run and you know everything inside out and you know uh, you've been nimble you made decisions on the fly to being part of you know a, a four billion dollar behemoth company right so, um, I didn't have an assistant because I didn't really feel like I needed one. I could just fly myself over to the fax machine, get something done in 10 seconds. You know, now we're sending in a form 30 times just to get one thing done. Um, and the uh, my favorite thing was the first couple weeks we had to switch over our whole payroll. All right. I don't have a bank account anymore. And the time clock shows up. And that's the wrong time clock, right? But I've got a couple weeks before these people need to get paid. They're getting paid every two weeks. And so they send a new one over. We send the form in 10, 20, 50 times. I don't remember. And they send it over and I'm like, great. And as an entrepreneur, this thing's on the floor. My staff needs to be paid. We've got like three days before payroll's due. I'm just going to take this thing out of the box with my IT department or have somebody just do it, right? Like set this thing up. Um, can't do that. It's part of the regulations of the new company. It has to be done in a certain way by a certain person. So the clock, doesn't get up and payroll doesn't get done. And they're like, sorry, you know? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean, sorry? You can't fix things and you can't do things. You can't just get things done really quickly. So it's it's a really big psychological shift as an entrepreneur. Um, everything they say about entrepreneurs, like having trouble uh, getting used to these larger corporations was true in our case.
0: So in that case, what did you do with the employees? You had 50 people who were expecting to get paid payroll comes and goes. You don't pay them. What did you do?
1: I mean, it's like, you know, it's the beginning of the shift in the morale, right? So we had this, nobody ever quit. I had the same staff for 10 years. Everybody loved our company because we did barbecues and all the great things that entrepreneurial spaces do. And I really believed in creating an incredible culture. And, you know, you just watch your staff start to get disappointed. It's heartbreaking. Um, I yelled and screamed and jumped up and down, but you know it, it they got paid i mean they 3 days later or something but it's it's um be, it was a long series of things you realize you just no longer have control over and to me that was the challenge was recognizing my payroll my legal the accounting right all the all these things are no longer under um my final say. It's, it's really some bigger system out there and, and you don't know how to navigate it, right? You, you're new to it. So that's, that's really big challenge as well.
0: I'm glad you brought up employees. How, how did you go about telling them you were a thinking about selling and, or B that you sold the company? When did you tell them and how did you go about it?
1: Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And, um, I think we were the only people in the history of LabCorp that did it this way, but, um, according to them, we actually told our staff, uh, upfront day one, um, as we started the deal, this is on the table and this is why we're thinking about doing it. And we saw getting the team on board, um, as just as important as getting the deal done. Um, because without the team being on board and with people jumping ship and with everybody panicking about their future, I knew we couldn't get much work done. And all of this, you know, all this value we had created for patients nationally might disappear, and we didn't want that. So we spent a ton of time uh, with the staff talking about you know, exactly – we're very transparent. This is why we're doing this, and this is why we think it's a good thing for you.
0: And what did they get out of it? Were they participating in some way financially?
1: No, but um, everybody was really on board with the uh, mission of the company, and they didn't want to see their work go out the window either, and they wanted job security, so – Um, we all did this together and they were part of diligence and they were part of like, I I guess a lot of companies do diligence offsite to hide it from their staff. We did it in our building. They helped me with the process and I protected them through the whole, um, the, the whole time I remained at the company. And truthfully, they stayed years and years after I did. So it it went very well that way.
0: And did you hit the shoot, the eject button kind of two years and one day later? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I did.
1: Um, it wasn't because I got my money and I was ready to run. Um, I had done entrepreneurship as a 24-year-old. I I was a little bit of one of those lost souls. I wasn't sure what I was doing. I loved entrepreneurship, but I really wasn't that excited about business uh, as a qua business kind of. So as we became part of this bigger company, it was really much more politics and strategies and you know national. Uh, just business marketing concepts. It wasn't very much entrepreneurial building a creative spirit left. So I really struggled. I just um, hit my psychological wall personally. And uh, <laughs> I did. I I ejected right away. But I have to say, I um, they would fire people every year. Another thing we were surprised about, um, they would promise headcounts, not give us the headcounts we wanted, hold headcounts, and then tell us we needed to fire people, uh, every year, which is incredibly stressful. Um, so I put my name on the chopping block and saved, you know, at least a handful of, of challenging fires.
0: Hmm. Wow. So last question as it relates to the actual, uh, sale itself. And, and it's one I ask everybody and basically is, you know, if you had to do this all over again, knowing what you know now, uh, if you had that knowledge, when you went into the negotiation, you know, what would you do differently?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, I, I feel like it, it, a lot of people have these horror stories and it really went terribly. I feel like it did go reasonably well for us. Um, I certainly, um, it was harder to integrate with the bigger organization than I anticipated. And that almost took us out a handful of times. So, you know, being prepared for that, the politics that come with a bigger corporation, um, I think my brother spent most of that year flying around and meeting everybody, uh, but that was extremely stressful and difficult. Um, people were being fired all the time, and every time we'd get a new manager, another one would would disappear. Um, but I think asking for more of an upside, if we did well, uh, was really the thing that we were um, bummed about, um, but, you know... Things went well. The teams are still in place, and the company is still in existence, growing. So I'm, you know, I feel relatively good about it.
0: That's amazing. And so, what are you doing now? Tell us about what the new chapter of your uh, career.
1: Yeah, um, I, uh, as I mentioned, I, I I went into entrepreneurship, and it um, wasn't as much of a passion play as, as some other people. I I like it, but um, I was a philosophy undergrad and graduate student, and. Um, I'm a yoga teacher and you're I did a hipp- that on the you're,
0: you're a hippie, aren't you,
1: Laura? <laughs> a little bit. A little
0: bit. <laughs> Tell the truth.
1: <laughs> so um I, I'm an author now. I wrote my first book. Um, and it's all about this idea of how to create life design. Um, because we go through college and it teaches us all this great stuff about the world, but it doesn't necessarily teach us how to design our own life. Um,
0: What's the name of the book?
1: It's called Emotional Obesity. That's and a the name. idea is Yeah, that we um take care of ourselves. Physically, every day we think about exercise, or at least we consider eating healthy, but what do we do for our emotional states? Um, and that's, uh, that's what happened to me. I wasn't paying much attention. I was working really hard. I did everything, um, one things to do, and I checked off all the boxes, um, made a lot of money, have the house and the family and everything, but realized it wasn't exactly a passion play. So um, the book's about how to, to find what you love.
0: What's been the most surprising thing for you about selling a business? I mean, you know, the cliche would be, you know, Laura sold her business and made a truckload of money and she rode off into the sunset. So that's the kind of cliche that people think about when they say, yeah, I sold this great business. For you, is that true? Was there something surprising about life after selling a business that, that you could yeah. share for people to kind of get ready for that experience themselves?
1: Yeah and I've dedicated a lot of my time um mentoring young entrepreneurs I live right by University of Chicago and Booth and the entrepreneurial school and I I I the the number one thing that I say to everybody is um we as a country as a culture and particularly as entrepreneurs I think hold our breath and we're going to be happy when, right? That when I sell the company, it's going to be this big moment and everything will just come together. Um, The birds will sing louder and my whole life will be perfect. I'm going to have cash. I'll have this, I'll have that and and I'll I'll have arrived, right? Um, Selling a company is fantastic and having extra money is amazing and freedom um, is a beautiful thing, but it isn't it isn't a ticket for the rest of your life to happiness. So I really highly recommend to everybody to enjoy the ride and celebrate every single solitary step of it. Because you know the 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 process of building your first systems and getting your first clients. I mean, all of it should be celebrated. Um, waiting for that end goal is a big mistake.
0: Such good advice, Laura. Where can people reach you?
1: Yeah. So my website is lauraco.com, um, C-O-E, Laura Co, or emotionalobesity.com. And um, you can check out the new book um, on the site.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with our listeners. I think it's an amazing story. You've been an amazing guest. Thanks, Laura.
1: Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here.